Welcome to the Glass Lab podcast, where we talk all things product development. It's our goal every month to introduce you to the people, ideas, and development tools that are shaping the hardware products we all use every day. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew Westrick, your host and VP of technology here at Glassboard. And this week on the episode, I have with me uh, Grant Chapman, our VP of operations here at Glassboard, as well as Sean Kleinschmidt, who is the president of data at the Brookfield Group. So welcome, guys. Um, I think the goal this week is sort of uh, go back to something that we talked a little bit about, I think, in the first episode, Mm -hmm. which is just sort of this whole like remote work, hybrid work uh, atmosphere that we're all sort of finding ourselves in. And I think we wanted to talk a little bit more about the tools, tips, tricks, things that we're doing at Glassboard, stuff that we're hearing about other people doing um, to sort of just help facilitate uh, people being offsite, clients maybe being offsite or remote. And, you know, how do you continue to work on hardware based products and sort of unlock um you know, those opportunities to collaborate, interact with physical goods, uh, pieces of hardware, development kits, you know, those kind of things, right? Yeah, and I think the the answer was, you know, all the software guys celebrated when they figured out they could go code in their pajamas from their couch, but all those hardware guys were like, <laughs> and how do I pull this off? So, you know, we've been doing it now for 18 months, and I think it's uh, our goal to share a little bit about what we've been able to pull off, the things we think are cool, and we got Sean here to help us, you know, figure out all the back end, and uh, Brookfield Group's been helping Glassboard do our actual back end and, you know, tie in all these crazy ideas we've had into reality. So, Sean, I think, you know, my first question for you is, how's the last 18 months been? It's uh, been unique. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been a it's been a great experience. It's uh, there's just so much change, right? All right. these companies are going through immense change. You have companies that, if you're not in your seat, you're not doing work. So going from that mindset all the way over to uh, how do you work remotely? How do you work effectively? How do you communicate? And that's where we've seen a lot of this change in platform, right? Things from Zoom, Teams, Google Meet, all those coming into play just to communicate with one another, pretend like you're actually on the other side of that pane of glass. Right, you know, between all the different video platforms fighting for your audio inputs and getting lost among the mix, I'm sure you get more than one phone call a day about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't think a meeting goes by where it's not someone's like, hang on, I can't hear you, you're on mute, all this. Uh, right, yeah, you know, my, oh, my AirPods in the room, but they're connected. Um, but no, so I think, you know, going past the, we'll call it, you know, the opening level of what everyone has to figure out, how do I get in, you know, email at home? How do I get Zoom on at home? I mean, that's the, the easy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, you know, dive into some of the, the cool stuff that actually makes doing the hardware stuff at home work. Yeah. So I think one of my first questions is, you know, have you seen like a big uptick in any of your clients using like VPNs or, you know, being able to physically dial into the office to touch things, whether that is like for us, a hardware tool or a, maybe a manufacturing plant where they can monitor something in real time. So, you know, what is the industry things or trends you're seeing in that space? Yeah, definitely seeing a lot of VPN and then a lot of really security around the entire thing. It's about securing the perimeter, being able to get people into their data where they need it. And data is just moving in general, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it went from all on-prem servers to uh, now people are having things in Azure, in Google, all these other places, and really trying to consolidate those to where people can get to them, get to them securely and get to them easily. Because you're dealing with a lot of people that aren't necessarily IT savvy, but they know how to get their job done and they know how to get it done well, but they want to be able to... uh, access that data and they want to be able to have it work every time and work consistently. So Right. And you're trying to train someone who isn't an IT expert to get in easily, but ensure that someone that is an IT expert that isn't supposed to be there can't get in easily. And I think that's probably one of the bigger challenges you guys are seeing. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So what's the the biggest like I'll call like one-stop shop that is like you need to implement this to to get past that. And, you know, I we've got two factor in a lot of things we do. What are the 
what's the thing that makes you sleep at night when your clients like opt in to insert security protocol here that is easy for them to do, but keeps everyone else out? Yeah, like you said, multi-factor is a great, great point of it. And then there's also a lot of good security tools out there, some next generation antivirus, secure DNS, uh, some, some ways where if you can just prevent the user from ever accidentally getting somewhere is even better. Yeah, uh, right. But yeah, just making sure their their passwords are secure, making sure they have good password management, working through those tools. I know you guys use those yep. all the time. I don't think I know a single one of my passwords other than the one long string to, <laughs> to get into my vault. So right. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to try to get them to understand those concepts because people think that just because I have a special character or a number, my password's mm -hmm. secure, and it's like, it's all about length. It has nothing to do with what the character is. Right, no, and I think that even I had a huge, like, aha moment when all of my passwords were garbled letters and numbers that, you know, auto password generator, that's no more secure than a longer phrase that I can always remember, like, the brown dog jumped over the big fence or something like nice, that. I got your password. Also. Right, Perfect. that's for <laughs> I, everything. I definitely think password managers are absolutely, like, a must for today, right? Like, I just think that... It's not a question of if, but when one of the websites that you use is going to be breached, yep. right? I mean, I get emails, it seems like every month from Discover, other, you know, credit monitoring or other things that are monitoring email addresses and things like that. And it's like, it's just continuous at this point, right? That's uh, exactly it, yeah. It doesn't matter if it's the federal government or a small business or a medium-sized business. Like, it just seems like no matter what your size is, uh, there's, there's always this, like, risk, right? So... Again, I, I feel like, especially, and, and we kind of drive this home at Glassboard, it's like, use your password manager, be setting a different unique password for every website. So if and when that website does get hacked, and again, you never know what their password security on their end is, right? I mean, ideally, they're hashing their passwords, you know, they're not storing them in plain text, but you as the user have no idea of knowing, right, like what they're doing with your password once you entered it on their website, yeah, right? You basically so. have to assume it's compromised, right? Like it's, you're, that's how right. some of the biggest breaches have happened, right? That right. Someone, some system admin puts their credentials into some basic forum and then that sure. forum gets compromised and now their entire work profile is compromised, when, which is where multi-factor also adds to that a lot as well. And sometimes it doesn't matter like if the data on whatever it is that got compromised, right? It's, it's if you reuse that password on something more important, right? So if I go and I sign up for some, you know, curve fit tool that I wanted to try out one time and their website gets hacked, but I reuse that password for my company Gmail account, um, there's nothing that keeps them from, and many a times that's, that is sometimes I think the goal is not so much they're interested in the data, but maybe the user, uh, information so that they can then use that to, you know, attack higher value websites or targets or, or things like that with that information. Right. Yeah, exactly. Social engineer their way in, get, whether it's your personal information, even not just your password, whether right. you get anything else that you put a password reset on there and you now know, okay, this is Drew's wife's maiden name. And right. And now you get to chase, you can get to somewhere else, talk your way into some, you know, on a phone call, you know, your three security questions and yep. you're off to the races. And I think, I mean, even we've been seeing when we have, you know, new hires for the glass board, it is, you strap your seatbelt in because they're going to get emails and phone calls because as soon as we post on LinkedIn, someone new joined, they're going to get, you know, hit up, hey, I am, you know, with your company and can you give me this sense of information? Just those phishing attacks are getting really sophisticated. It's getting way more personal is yeah. what we're seeing. Yeah, like. It's yeah. much more sophisticated. Like it's definitely feels like this is no longer just like bots sending out like spam or uh, phishing emails that are sort of sent in mass. Like I definitely think that people are like certainly yeah. actively mining companies, social media announcements, looking up, you know, titles, that kind of stuff. Like really actually, I mean, it definitely seems like there's for sure another human being that is taking like time, effort and energy to like target a lot of companies, right? Yeah, and they'll even sit in your mailbox to see how do you type things. Like what time of day do you send things? Who do you commonly send things to? What does your right. signature look like? All these things that really can look like they impersonate you. And without some good phishing training to the end users, you're 
I mean, even some of them they send to us, I'm like, wow, this, this would have taken me a second even to, to really justify it. This isn't valid. Right. Like I would have had to call that person. Like, did you send this? <laughs> like, it seems like you, it smells like you, but why would you ask me to do this thing? Exactly. Right. So no, it's, it's one of those like super just, it's getting more and more common. I think it's getting easier and easier for these, you know, firms to try and pull that off. So I think that, you know, I think that's the, the hard part with what we're all trying to do is open things up so that from home, from the airport, from, as you were saying, go-go in-flight internet's gotten so good that you were, you know, manipulating hardware to our office when you were transiting, you know, how many thousands right. of feet in the air. Yep. I think that's the, the cool story that the technology does allow us to get in everywhere, but the question is how do we make sure we do yeah. that in the correct ways? The good thing is accessibility from almost anywhere. The downside is other people can have <laughs> accessibility from everywhere, accessibility right? <laughs> from everywhere, right? It's, it's I think, it, I mean, again... Like I, I definitely don't envy the the job that that you have today, just in terms of that that footprint that you have to secure. I feel like just got immensely larger due to the fact that uh, lots and lots more people are are doing this, you know, outside of the office, right? Yeah, and data is all over now too. You're not just securing one server in an IT room. You're dealing with their email that's hosted on Gmail or hosted with Microsoft, mm -hmm. wherever it is. There's all these right. disparate places that the data exists. Yep, or just all the SaaS companies we use for communication between email, Slack, Miro, you know, real-time board, all these other tools that people just pull into because they're useful. They, you know, they connect people, they connect data in ways that you didn't use before, but it, all of these third-party services also tie into everything and tie into each other, right? There's never a Slack plugin for lacking, right? If I insert new sure. internet tool I want to use, someone has made a Slack plugin to make it tie into Slack. Um, so I just think, you know, that interconnectedness must be pretty hard to tie up and, and keep safe. So kind of, we're doing our best and want to see how other guys are doing it. But I think one of the things we want to get into on the podcast is how do we tie that into hardware, right? Right. So at Glassboarding, you've been helping us out do some of this is get, you know, opening up hardware to be remotely accessed. And, you know, most of the time when people think of working on either development kits or test benches or things like that, they're there with the banana clips themselves, you know, hooking things up, manipulating power supply with their fingers. But everything has gotten so connected, we can actually set up some of that ourselves. So I think I want to talk about um, one of those use cases that you've helped set up, Drew, is we've got a, you know, a station set up with power supplies and, and power meters, things like that, for analysis of devices under test. And we can reconfigure that depending on what the client needs and things like that. But what we've allowed them to do is to dial in and then the client or any of our engineers from anywhere in the world can dial into this computer that's set up and isolated to do this and test a piece of physical hardware in our office, which I think is really powerful. Um, and I think it's really allowed some of that, um, you know, innovation to happen wherever we are in the world and across teams that are, you know, not just within the United States, but everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's literally, I think, the reason why we actually set this up at the beginning um, was literally due to a time zone issue, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, we had an engineer uh, that's that's in the Asian time zone, and um, you know, we were talking back and forth about some things that needed to be tested on this development kit. Um, it's it's an early release of this device, so there's there's a limited number of development kits. It really didn't make sense to try to get more than one development kit and ship it to him. And obviously, there's the whole issues of you know customs and and you know all of that. And so I just said, hey, like. Would it be useful? You know, I've got a couple of these old Think Center, uh, like thin client machines laying around. Would it be useful if, if I just, you know, loaded some Linux on there, got a, you know, a remote sharing application loaded up on it, and then actually just physically connected the dev kit to this? And he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Because then, you know, you know, in the couple hours of overlap in the time zones we have, you and I can discuss the plan at this, sort of the end of, of my day and the beginning of his day. And then he's like, I can go and, and, you know, mess with the dev kit and load software and test things out and, you know, uh, do this all remotely. And so that's exactly what we did. And even beyond that, um, we're able to hook now, you know, some of the uh, test equipment up to our network. Uh, the power supply uh, can be controlled over Ethernet. So even if he needs to modify stuff on the test bench in terms of changing, you know, turning the voltage down or slightly up if he's trying to, you know, test 
uh, you know, power measurement at, at different voltages and currents. He can do that. Um, we've got a dual scope in there. So he's able to monitor, um, you know, power. One of the things we're looking at is, you know, power consumption of the development kit in different scenarios. So all these things uh, he can control essentially entirely remotely. Um, sure, there's there's still some stuff, you know, if we need to switch out a different development kit or, you know, maybe if there's something physically that has to be pressed or touched or something like that, uh, that's certainly uh, a circumstance that they'll have to, to get around. But largely, I mean, most of what um, he's looking to test and do can be done remotely simply because uh, we, we've sort of got this, uh, this, this setup. So, and I'm sure you guys see benefit of that too. Like if you have to stay home with your kids for a minute, you can still work remotely from there. Or if they're 10 o'clock at night and you want to jump on with them, you're right there with them without yeah. taking that trip to the office. So. Maybe you can actually talk a little bit grant about like the, the 3d printers. Like I think yeah. this is a super cool feature that, uh, that they've added, right? Yeah. I mean, this is really a brainchild that you and I kind of had together that you found the, the beta software that allows you to remote print on the older form printers. So you can prime the printers and, and tell them, yes, you've got resin in you. Yes. You've got a build train. You're all set up correctly but wait for me to send you a file to print. And so we can prime these printers and then we were able to open that up over a VPN. So now when you and I are at home or anywhere, we can see the status of the printers and we can send files to them. So what it's really allowed us to do is get these, you know, any of our clients in other time zones, specifically the West Coast um, for, for a lot of our clients, but even my, my Asian contacts, they have to send me updated CAD files to try out. We can put that on the printer in the middle of the night and I don't need to be there. I don't need to hit the go button. And when I get in in the office in the morning, the prints are ready and all we have to do is post-process them, you know, put them in the wash, put them in the UV cure and send them out over UPS next day air. And in, you know, a maybe 36 hour time frame from when they sent me the file, they have a part to talk about. And with the formulas printers being so inexpensive to print from, we can print three or four copies of most of the things we're trying out, mail them out all over the world from, you know, to the West Coast, to the East Coast, anywhere in the United States, try and get them to Asia in a day or two. And everyone then on the next meeting that we can have that part. And I don't have to run in the office in the middle of the night to gain that 12 hours of print time. Yeah, no, so. absolutely. It really saves you that full business day almost and keeps the printers running. Because if you can run them 24-7, that's your best ROI right. on those things. Right. It's one of those other use cases where like they used to, you know, either, you know, just kind of run during the day and then, you know, at night you'd be done unless you had something ready to go at five o'clock. But now we can really get that two shifts out of them, which is really, really cool. And again, doubles the, the value of the, of the machine. Now, Forum Labs is getting twice the resin out of me every month, but, you know, that's that's where they win. It almost makes me wonder if there's like an opportunity for like a like a, a company just to light up a service, right? Mm -hmm. Where uh, it's almost like if you think about, you know, AWS cloud computing, you know, you can you can literally remote in, pick what instance, what size, what memory configuration you want. Like it almost makes me wonder if, if you could set up a website, right, where it's like, OK, I want to print on a, a form two or a form three and I want clear resin. And, and if you just had this stable of a bunch of 3D printers, uh, sure, maybe you'd have to swap out resins or kind of maybe try to predict what the most popular mm -hmm. materials are so that you could sort of have those preloaded and set up for people. But it almost makes me wonder, uh, you know, a lot of prototyping companies, you send them the files, they then look at them, they then handle, you know, physically loading them up on the printers and stuff. But it almost makes me wonder if you could just like streamline all of that and just make sure the printers are, you know, up, ready to go. But let people literally remotely sort of control the 3D print job from like preform or something, right? right? No, I'm, I, I hate to say that on the podcast, so now it's going to be I know, a right? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> like giving away the guts. Exactly. Some Somebody either do this or, uh, yeah. you know, we, we might. We might. But no, that's, I mean, honestly, that's a great idea. And the Forum Labs has really built up that ecosystem as long as you're on a local network and as long as you could build the software stack about, you know, gating people only into the right, you know, IP addresses when they chose they want to use that kind of a printer. Right. Um, that's totally possible and super easy to do. And it's the preform has made it almost, you know, user proof that it's hard for them to damage your printer with a bad print setup. 
so that like as long as the preform didn't have any errors, and I'm sure you could check their code for that, sure. that it would only let it print if there weren't any, you know, the red splotches on, right? Like, yeah. like or cups detected. Just and, have a whole 3D printing as a service type uh, of a with, yeah, with, without even having to view the vials or anything. Well, again, I think the, the the concept here would be that hey, like you are sort of responsible for whether or not your print is printable, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly if there was a mechanical issue or the resin ran out or something physically with right. the hardware, you know, maybe you would refund people for a yeah. print, but you know, at that point, they'd really just be sort of renting time on the printer and, and you're not really saying, well, you know, we're going to limit how you use it or we're going to charge you, you know, more money or less money or whatever the case may be. Right. right. No, so. and it's literally like paper milliliter, right? Paper print hour and then just send them the part post-process, but not off the supports, right? Just clean it up to the best of your ability and, and send right. it out. Because I think, you know, you can automate that and then someone's responsible for their own support removal, which is really where you get into, do I want this fast and dirty because I just need it to be functional or do I need to sit here with snips and sandpaper and, sure. and baby the thing till it's beautiful? Which And that's some of the things people don't want to do. Some engineers want to just press print, press go, and then just have it show up. So this really gives right. them that functionality. Well, and again, there could be just all these different ancillary services, no, right? Like, yeah. There's a thing for tick on post processing. Yeah. There's a tick for, you know, do you want us to remove the structures, right? Yeah. Um, and, and if so, you know, do you just want the structures removed or do you want the structures removed and like some like and sand or sand, or something, yeah. right? just have it work every time. Like, I mean, I just had on one of my printers, right? It just mm -hmm. overflowed and there's resin everywhere and it's a mess. And it's just like, <laughs> yep, it's, it's unfortunate to deal with. But some but uh, just having a print that, you know, works every single time, which is almost always the case with preform and right. labs. But it is. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable how like reasonably consistent those things have gotten that like I just count on it. And yeah, when it doesn't work, it's like, oh, something went wrong. I probably did it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, so that's, I mean, I think that's the, you know, between getting access to printers and hardware um, is super cool. And I just want to ask you some questions about the the space you're seeing outside of just development. I'm going to make the assumption that, you know, you're seeing more manufacturers embrace this remote connectivity where some of the roles that might have typically been on site, they're allowing to do remote. But you then as the IT firm have to come in and open up doors in places that you didn't have to before. Is that like a thing that's happening? Yeah, there's a lot more monitoring that happens, a lot more like the plant manager can just log in in the middle of the night when he gets a call, not have to go drive to the plant and deal with it or uh, get a, a lot of times like certain systems, like you have cooling systems that can be really dangerous, right? You can use ammonia, you can use some of these pretty toxic chemicals uh, and to be able to just get an alarm and check it out or at least talk to the person and be in real time looking at the same thing that the tech on site's looking at. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's that much faster. I mean, for us, 95% plus of our service calls are all remote anyways, right? So we're, we're able to handle all these things from one central location and not have to uh, really go out on site. And that same thing we're now seeing is really replicating to our customers. And it's something we did for a while and then be able to give them those same tools, be able to remote into their machine. Uh, that was something we actually did for one of our customers really early on. They were primarily all they had was desktops. Mm -hmm. So giving them a way to securely VPN and then just remote into their exact computer, um, even with their own personal devices and setting it up in a way that, because that was a huge problem right at the beginning of the pandemic. Everyone's like, I need a laptop. And that just didn't exist. It still barely <laughs> exists today. Like, right. it's, it's challenging, so. Let me ask you this. I mean, do you see, I think, like in sort of like the corporate IT world, uh, like an embrace of uh, some of the open source stuff out there, or is it still pretty much, uh, you know, from the big vendors, uh, you know, Cisco, th those kind of folks, right? I mean, there's things like OpenVPN that I think is getting like more popular out there, but I'm just kind of curious to see, are, are people open to using some of that stuff? And do they feel like uh, because they're open source and, and you no know, more people are looking at that and can potentially see where the bugs and errors are, like that that is more secure, or do they still kind of look towards, uh, you know, the bigger, uh, vendors to to sort of provide that like that security, especially when it pertains to like VPN, I think related stuff, right? Yeah, I think it's definitely come a long way. I think it's really pushing some of the big guys to kind of step up, right? There's you're now able to see exactly what's going on. It's you, like you said, you can have check out the code yourself and see 
which that inherently gives you better security that you're having multiple people look at it, not just in this black box right. and hoping it works and then hoping there's not these zero day bugs out there that, mm -hmm. that everyone's going after. Right, or the, or the one employee that goes rogue and knows the one backdoor that no one else can see because it was his code he wrote kind yep. of thing. Or using the same password for everything like we've seen recently. So That happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. So do, do you see the use of OpenVPN much at all or? Yeah, it's on a few handful of platforms that we we provide. I think it's worked nice. great. I know uh, we've transitioned with on some of your guys' mm -hmm. stuff that uh, it's worked consistently. And that's really the big difference is it works almost every single time without having to, once it's set up, it's it's stable and secure. Right, right, right. right. No, that's that's awesome. And then I think, you know, going back to that password thing, I think the, the multi-factor slash two-factor thing is, we talked about a bunch on this, but I think one of the things I want to pick your brain on is, you know, a lot of it's tied to your phone nowadays, right? Whether it's through SMS or through a dedicated app that generates a code. I remember back in the day, you do see those keychains that would have those like LCD screens yeah, for the banks and everything. For the banks like and everything. Yeah, my uncle had one of those the yep. little RSA guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it would just you know tick through all the codes over time. You had to get yep. resynced if they you know got the battery died or whatnot. Um, I mean, you're starting to see these guys like YubiKey and these other hardware tools. Is there like an inherent difference or more or less secure factor for something like a YubiKey or, or like that versus your phone authentication? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because there's a lot of, I mean, there's something to be said against the uh, yeah use of just cell phone text, right? Because right. people have been able to take over accounts. You can gain mm -hmm. access to it for 24 hours. We've seen that a lot of attacks happen that way. Um, so some of these dedicated accounts or dedicated services, like you're mentioning, um, it is an app. And that's, that's something to get over because some companies don't provide cell phones. So now you're asking your end employees to use their own personal devices. Right. Um, but and then you have to link them up and authenticate their device. And keep and them they, working. And if they mm -hmm. switch cell phones, it's on you to re-authenticate them. Right. Or they're locked out of all of their work for the day. Yeah. Again, and I, I would give a shout out again to like LastPass. I'd, we use them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think one of the coolest things is their authenticator app you're able to sort of back up those codes to your LastPass account. And I feel like that's kind of nice. At least I've found that from the, you know, you get a new phone or if you do have your phone damaged to the point where it wipes out like the data that's there. Uh, again, theoretically, I think if, if that data is backed up, you should be able to restore the backup. But um, the point being is like, I remember in the past, like I accidentally, you know, I think wiped a phone or something and forgot that I had, you know, the Google Authenticator on there. This is kind of before I had as much 2FA stuff. But again, I think like being able to link, uh, like again, like LastPass being secured with the YubiKey, right? A username, password, and, you know, physical hardware 2FA. And that sort of being like our root of trust. And then outside of that, being able to link your Authenticator app, which maybe has a bunch of other uh, 2FA codes that maybe aren't hardware based, but sort of like this like layering scheme, right? Where you sort of have like, this is the core thing we're trying to protect, right? Which would be like access to the LastPass account. And then we sort of have our important accounts outside of that that are all hardware protected with 2FA. And then more of just your ancillary stuff outside of that, that maybe are just protected with like a code or SMS 2FA, that kind of stuff, but sort of treating it a little bit like a medieval castle, right? Yep. Where like you you sort of have this core of what you want to protect and then sort of as it radiates out, you say, okay, I'm willing to take more compromises with the security depending upon how, you know, how important that asset is. Is that kind of what you guys see a lot yeah, in terms of your strategy as well? That's really how security has been taken. It's all in layers. You, can, you can't assume any one piece is going to be enough to, to lock you in. And then it's balancing security and layers along with ease of use for the end customers, which is one of the things I think is great about YubiKeys is administratively, you can manage it, you hand it to your employee, it's now pretty much set up for them, they just plug it in, and as long as they don't lose it, you're all right. But even if they do lose <laughs> Big it- Big ass there, Sean, right. as long as they don't lose it. <laughs> yep. uh, but even if they do, you can still disable that YubiKey, reissue a new one, and, and carry on with life. Right. And I think that's really one of the big benefits, at least to a more corporate environment of multi-factors, that you do have that administrative back, background that if a customer gets locked out or an end user gets locked out, you have a way to 
help them back out and get them back in. Right. It's just trying to make it a way that they don't get so frustrated with it. They're like, oh, just bypass my MFA. And you're like, I'm not going to do that. Like, we, we have to figure out a way to make this work for you. Right, right, and right. So, like, the alternative is, yeah, you're used to typing in, like, a six-digit code. And so there's companies like Duo that's out there where all yeah. you're doing is pressing approve or decline rather than yeah. actually having to type in that code. And that simple thing makes it that much easier for them because they're like, they try to type it in with three seconds left and they miss their, their last yeah, number. Right. right. I, def I definitely feel like I prefer the stuff that I have set up with the YubiKey. I definitely think you physically have to have it on you. So that is like a downside potentially, right? But yeah, just anymore, if I just leave it plugged into my keyboard, again, the nice thing is you still have to press the button to actually like app approve it, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody can't even like remotely sort of like make that request and just have it auto approve. So I think that's a nice security feature of the device. But I definitely think stuff like this um, and like the push. 2FA definitely makes sort of the best of both worlds where it helps on the ease of use side. So it's not such a big burden on the end user as well as still giving you that really good, nice, secure 2FA that you want. Yeah. And it gives you some nice audit logging at the same time, too. You can see like, hey, someone tried to authenticate to this account at this time. And it's like, hey, I got to push at 11 o'clock at night. This is this is right. suspicious. And then you can kind of dig back into the logs and figure out, is there yeah. actually an attack happening? Well, right. a lot of sites, too, to ease the use, you can do things like say, hey, I want to approve or trust this device for maybe 30 days, right? So there is other ways of, again, that layering where you can sort of have that trade off between I want to approve my personal work laptop, right? You know, the odds of me losing that or that being stolen along with my like, you know, you know, password or something else to log into it are probably much lower than again, somebody like remote accessing it, right? And so anytime it's a remote access event, there's now this elevated uh, sort of wall that's put up to that user to say, okay, like, you're gonna have to give me, you know, the username, the password, the 2FA, even sometimes I think um, some services go so far as even if you have everything, they still will like send an email to you and say approve or deny, yeah. right? If it seems like it's, you know, coming from somewhere it's not expecting. Yeah, like TeamViewer will do that every time, right? You have to go to your email and you have to hit approve and yeah. half the time you're like, why didn't I forget my password? And nope, just in my email waiting to, to get through the spam filter. Right, but, yep, yep. No, and I think the the one surprising time, like computer security and, you know, how we're getting so good at 2FA and things that aren't just password based, I'm seeing a whole lot less like Windows Hello, a whole lot less fingerprint readers in like modern Windows laptops in the last two years compared to what I saw like three and four and five years ago. I'm just curious how you think you're seeing less. You less, said? yeah. Like really? I, I feel like it was a really hot topic. Everyone put in their flagships and advertised. And yeah. now, yeah, sure, there's still you can definitely buy Windows Hello laptops and they're great, but it's not in a lot of them. Like I thought, you know, by now we'd have Windows Hello in everything or a fingerprint reader in everything because sure. I. I can't think of a Windows laptop I've seen in the last two years that had a fingerprint reader. Like, Macs do. Yeah. But, I mean, those, because win Windows had them forever. You know, little stripes you'd swipe by and, yeah. and log in. They were terrible and never worked. And you could trick them with a hot dog. But I don't see them at all anymore. I'm just curious, you know, Sean, where do you think that tech is going? Because I know they're going with the new Windows 11. They have to have that security chip in there, right, for encryption and stuff. So have you seen any trends in the industry heading that direction? Yeah, we definitely see a little bit of an uptick with, Windows Hello and everyone's like, hey, I have it on my home computer. Why can't I set it out at the domain level? And it's right. like, well, there's all these steps you have to jump through. And you can get it to set up, but that's part of it. It's a lot of administrative maintenance. And mm -hmm. then it still doesn't eliminate the password. You still have to remember your password right. at certain times to log in, even with those, those right. systems set up. Um, yeah, so it's, it's I agree. It's in interesting to see how the biometric stuff will continue. Because, I mean, Apple's all about it, all their devices, right? You, your face think, ID or yeah. touch ID, yeah. Again, I think that's previous huge deal, right, with the password manager, right? Because, again, I think if, if you really uh, can give the user, like, one, you know, semi-difficult but memorable password and be like, hey, you just have to memorize this, and then, you know, you issue them a 2FA device to sort of back that password up in the event that that's compromised, I think, you know, then 
they can autofill or, you know, use plugins. They've got them for iPhone, Android, you know, mm-hmm. web browsers, whatever. Again, uh, you know, today it's like I probably I mean, I, I can hardly log into any account that I can think of that's important to me because uh, I don't know the password to it. Right. Like I completely agree. And I think that's the big concept of changing from password to passphrase. A lot of it, too. Right. It's right. all just like you mentioned earlier. It's just length. It's getting it. Right. But also something you can remember. I can't remember a bunch of random characters. That means nothing to me. Right. And it really doesn't mean anything different to the computer either. It's just those getting those extra characters, getting that long sentence of whatever you uh, mm-hmm. whatever you can remember. Right. Yeah, and it's you know no one remembers the math as you know exponential. Yeah. Every character is what to the twenty fourth like next level of things they have to try. Yeah, and then that's also monitoring like there's dark web monitoring tools all out, out there all over now as well, which find out yeah. if a compromise happened, figure out where that password was used, and try to reset it. Even if because even if people mm-hmm. haven't fully adopted it, you can still try to help protect them by having that even if the password's compromised let's reset the password hopefully a multi-factor so they didn't get past anything but still keep the multi-factor available yeah i think the last piece of this um you know we've obviously talked about like passwords like security that kind of stuff i think also kind of back to the development side of things is uh particularly like with with yubikey is um, the ability to like load other keys like onto that device so one of the things as well that we do at glassboard is um you know, basically we have a, a set of uh, encryption signing keys, a couple of different keys that get loaded on the Yuba keys. And I think what's really neat about that is, is a couple of things. One is um, you can set up code access using the keys that are on that. So you, you have to have a passphrase to unlock the keys that are physically on the hardware device. But you know, instead of having uh, your security material, your keys on a physical laptop drive or a thumb drive or something that again, could get hacked, could get stolen, could get ransomware. Uh, you've got it on this like, you know, dedicated piece of, of hardware, right? Um, you know, I've got you know, offline backups of, of that key material, right, that you, that you load onto these things. But um, what I find really neat about that is, A, the ability to, uh, you know, set up, like, access to the code. Again, kind of sort of getting rid of that model of using a username and a password uh, that you're going to have to constantly maybe type into a command line, right? So right off the bat, that means that the password probably has to be memorable. If it's memorable, you know, can you also make it secure? So I think like eliminating that step to just saying, hey, we're going to rely on the hardware piece to simply uh, check code out, check code in. Um, But then also uh, what I think is really cool is the ability then to do like sign commits. I think this is both fantastic from my perspective at Glassboard, which is really when we do a project uh, from an IP perspective for somebody else, like I can essentially go back through that, that, you know, log over time of all that code or all the hardware that we design and say, you know, this is the guy that worked on this. This is when he pushed these commits in. And I can sort of digitally verify that, that they did, in fact, you know, do that work. And again, I think where this is really powerful as well is when you um, hand over that IP to the end customer or client, there's also uh, sort of like a liability side of things where we can say, you know, this is where Glassboard's development stopped and you took over the project and it started, right? So if there's ever maybe a defect with the product or an error with the software or something, right? You know, think, you know, the whole like Boeing crisis, right? Like, you know, clearly there was a, a software bug or an error or a decision made along that that path of development um, in the new 737 Max. And, you know, can you go back and sort of figure it out, like, like where did this problem get introduced? Because, you know, figuring out the root cause of the problem in software is, you know, honestly half the battle sometimes, right? Is figuring out like, how did this happen and how do we prevent that from happening in the future? And so again, having these like signed commits and being able to say like, hey, this is where this bug came in and this is the organization that was responsible for that. And what are we gonna do to make sure that that doesn't happen again? again, I think is all sort of linked back into the same conversation that people have about 
uh, security as well, right? So there's there's the security and the access side of it, but I think there's also the uh, the trust side of security, which is to say, you know, if uh, Drew really said that he made these code commits, how do we verify that he actually made these code commits? Because again, I think there's implications to the open source community as well. You know, um, if, if you've got um, you know, in the Linux world, if you've got somebody saying, oh, well, Linus, you know, made this commit, therefore we should, we should trust this spe specific piece of code. There's really nothing natively in GitHub that you can do to verify that. I mean, if I set up a, you know, a commit, I, I can claim to be Sean Kleinschmidt and I can use your email address to say that you're the one that checked this code in, right? But unless I'm able to sign that code or, or verify that there's real no great way to provide um that that trust right so right. again i think that's the other thing that's really neat about hardware security modules people like yubikey others that are doing this stuff um, from a development standpoint is is adding all of this other stuff into the mix and it's really i mean again there's some amount of headaches and hurdles that you have to do but i feel like the tools are adopting a lot of these security principles and are making it much much easier to do this stuff where it doesn't add a huge burden to the developer to do that yeah it actually adds more value than not having it right to really be able to compare that code compare where yeah. you're at where you're growing and right? i mean i like it because if i move if i take you know get a new laptop or something again i don't have to like worry about moving all those passwords and stuff over or again if i go to a machine and i need to check out some code but maybe i don't want all of my keys or passwords left on that machine i plug the YubiKey in I grab the, you know, the piece of code that I want to, you know, clone. And then when I remove the, you know, the YubiKey, my, you know, that your access to, to future commits, you know, push changes, whatever, right, leaves with the, the hardware security module. No, and I think that the, the other great thing about YubiKey is that's the multi-way to use it, right? They, that's USB-A1 that I use because most of my laptops have yep. USB-A in them, but it also has RFID in it. Yep. Um, you can read it with your phone, and they make USB-C ones. You know, when that gets fully adopted, we're finally in the, the future where everything is the same size plug, but none of them work together because they have different power <laughs> ratings. You know, can't wait to officially adopt that. But I think that it's so neat that it is wireless, it's wired, it's got more than one way to Bluetooth talk. Bluetooth ones out there, actually, right. too, mm -hmm. today. So. so no, I think that, you know, the more we can see this get, you know, built together and again i'm waiting for you know the king apple to build in a hardware encryption thing in my phone so you know you can just natively use your iphone that already has biometrics i'm sure it exists in the back end they just need to expose well, I, I it think, out i think for them it's really it's really it's face id and touch id right mm -hmm. like again i think when you look at that that root of trust i think the the biometric thing your face no, id yeah. or your you know your fingerprint in the case of touch id is sort of that verification no, and for a lot of, i mean everything right, right. no logging I, into apps right uh, i guess they, they, they transactions. do they do exactly what i'm talking about just all through then the second party authentication apps right it's only right. within apple services i can truly use the apple ecosystem to do it like when i log into icloud on the laptop i have to approve it for my watch yeah. or my phone with my biometrics but again back to the password manager piece uh, in a lot of instances again I, once i've typed my you know uh, my password manager password in I'm from that point forward, nine times out of 10 authenticating or approving the use of that vault to log right. into a ve website right. via say, uh, you know, face ID or, or touch ID. Right. So again, it's sort of going back to every login, ensuring that the person me is the one doing it right. And not an imposter. Right. So. Yeah, no, correct. Yeah. But yeah. So that's, uh, that, that's all of our security work. Yeah. So, Again, I, I think there's a, the landscape's changing vastly. Again, I appreciate you coming on um, to this episode, Sean, just to talk about it kind of from, from your perspective. I think, again, lots of opportunities out there with remote work, hybrid work. I think it's changing the way that we certainly approach product development, the tools that we're using to enable that, you know, remote access or that hybrid access, whether it's 
uh, people that work for Glassboard that need to access that remotely or our clients and customers that have sort of that uh, expectation to be able to, you know, have a, you know, play a role within the, the product development process. And again, I think that goes back to sort of the transparency piece of Glassboard of, of sort of working um, when we can directly with, with our clients and customers. And like the more we can take down those barriers or walls to allowing them to play a role in that process, I think, you know, the better job uh, we can all do in, in creating products, uh, you know, for people. So, no, I agree. And I think, you know, getting that hardware access, because that's what we offer to most of our clients is that ability to touch hardware, mm -hmm. right? You know, they, they bring us on because they're missing e of one of the verticals or all of the verticals in the hardware engineering space and giving them a window into what we have, the tools, equipment, the you know, test procedures, I think is the, one of those great value adds that we're not a black box. We're not the, hey, I want this thing done and you give it to me done. It is, hey, like, do you want to see how the prototype is being tested? Log in and check it out or, you know, log into a printer and throw a print on because you want to see this in the morning. I can mail it out to you. I think that's the, you know, that, that open door is what really separates the, you know, transparent part and the, the work together part versus the black box of you do services and, and at the end of the day, we produce product at the end of the day. Which is yeah. what's really unique for you guys, right? Able to mm -hmm. be nimble, quick, quick responsive and all that to right. uh, yeah, turn around for your customers. Well, I feel like that's the same with what you guys do at Brookfield, right? I've, I've seen you guys step into some of your clients' you know, IT roles and end up solving a process problem for them that is completely outside of you know, just the pure IT role you play, but you use the tools in your toolbox to make their life better in their manufacturing process or their customer service process and things like that. Yeah, and that's what a lot of these tools force you to do is to reevaluate your process so that it's more efficient and working for everyone. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, hey, um, I think that's it for the episode today. Uh, really appreciate um, everybody, you know, listening to the episode. Um, we're gonna have some more future ones. I know we keep like, we keep talking about uh, the machine maker space, <laughs> and, and eventually uh, uh, we'll get those folks on here. Um, I was actually just part of the Make Forty Eight event last week uh, that was held here. So um, I'm sure in the future, um, when when the materials become available for that, um, we'll be uh, you know kind of pushing that out. But uh, yeah, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in, and uh, we'll talk to you in the next one. Awesome, thanks so much. Thanks.